If I should turn in your Bibles this evening, the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, continue in this series, this book of wisdom. Proverbs, chapter 4. I'll begin reading verse 20 to the conclusion of the chapter. Proverbs, chapter 4. Listen as I read. Follow along with me if you would. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. I'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 27. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them. And health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. As far the reading of God's glorious word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as we come again to that word which you have given to us, your church in every age, that is trustworthy and true, that is sufficient for life and for godliness, that we might tonight... Sit for a time, lay aside the cares of this world, and to contemplate what is to be gleaned about you and what we are to do in light of your glorious revelation. Lord, our desire is that we might have an eternal inheritance that outshines the sun, and yet there are times where we do not. In the day-to-day of life, do what is necessary in keeping with that ultimate end. Give us strength and endurance then in this life of discipleship so that we might shine our light before men, that you might be glorified with us. Make us such a people. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we move to the end of this chapter, the second part of it really. We saw earlier in chapter 4 the sayings, not just of a father, but a grandfather. A generation and a generational wealth. The kind of wealth that comes, not just at a will reading, but what happens when those who walk in faithfulness with the Lord convey how that is to be done to their children and their grandchildren and so on and so on. That is what we wish for is the faithfulness of God to be displayed from generation to generation to generation. In fact, covenant curses are almost always displayed as cutting off covenantal blessing, blessings, the increase of covenant blessing. It's hard not to think of those things when our children are sitting with us in the pew, our grandchildren are beside us. Uh, We think of not only God's faithfulness to us, but how he rewards Let's just be honest. We err more than we get it right. 
I was conveying a truth to my sons yesterday. We've renewed our love for Braves baseball, I have to say. And I said, if you fail 66% of the time you get up at bat, you will go into the Hall of Fame. If you bat over 300 lifetime, you go to the Hall of Fame. I think there's probably something true of that in parenting. Uh, There is much failure. Children, you need to know this about your parents. If they've not told you, they know you know. You know they know you know, and so on and so on. The reason they have any authority is because God has given it to them. And the reason they have anything to say at all and why you should listen is because God has given to them the great task of teaching you, not perfectly, but as those who are means, instruments in the hands of the Lord to bring about in you greater gains of godliness. Wisdom. And so I would call you again to hear the words of a father, a father to a son, how they are to be received and thusly manifested. Now, you, if you're like me, Go through this book and you see time and time again, there is an enormous amount of repetition. I can't think of one thing that I've told to my children that I haven't had to tell them more than once, or myself for that matter. Repetition is part of, it is part and parcel of instruction. But here, we look particularly at the words of a father regarding one's own personal parts. The anatomy of a righteous man. What does it look like? I want to cover that concept in these two headings. First, receiving the Father's words. Second, manifesting the Father's words. Let's look at this first point. Receiving. There is a kind of passive reception of wisdom. Look at verse 20 and 21. We receive the Father's words, the words of God, the words of wisdom, with our eyes... And ears. In fact, it begins ears here in verse 20. My son, give attention to my words, incline your ears to my sayings. The son is to listen. He is to look at his father. He is to give attention. And he is to receive through the father, not just the father's wisdom, but it is wisdom because it comes from God. Now, in Romans chapter 10, Paul addresses the means by which the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth to the nations. And this is what we read, beginning in verse 16 of Romans chapter 10. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is what the church is built upon. All wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding, all righteousness, it comes to us by hearing the word of God preached or taught. And so in the same way, every person you've ever met has a mother and a father. Every convert you've ever met was converted through the preaching or teaching of the word of God. By word. By word. 
And so God has given a word to men. Now, we must not reduce that word, as we often do in today's evangelical climate, to a gospel, merely gospel-centered life. There's something in that term that's a bit loaded. Do some research. You'll find what I mean by that. But the whole counsel of God's word, all of Christ for all of life, God's word is to be our primary source of instruction and leading. We looked at that even this morning from the book of Revelation. The word of God is not to be added to or taken away from. It is complete. It is perfect, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19. It is, because of its perfection, good, gainful, helpful, instructive, transforming. So the son is to access wisdom with his ears by listening. Now, you know that simply sitting in a room where someone is speaking does not constitute listening. Wives, you've probably experienced this with your husbands. They're there. They may even be looking at you, and you're speaking with them. And at the end, you ask a simple question, and they don't take the cue. Not that I've been there myself. I I can't say that. But you know what I mean. It is easy to even look at someone, to see their mouth moving, and to be somewhere else altogether. It is important, especially in those times where God has promised to speak to his covenant people, in those times of covenant worship, where we are to tune in and turn up the volume of what God has to say in his word and turn the volume of all other things down. In fact, if there is anything that Sunday is for, it is to turn the volume down on the world and to turn the volume up on what God has to say from his word, if I can put it that way. Pay attention. Listen to me. And then verse 21, not only to use your ears as a means of receiving the words of the Father, the wisdom of God, but to not stop looking at it. Faith comes by hearing, but faith also, wisdom also comes by reading and examining and searching. If you have a copy of God's word in print, you should open it and read it. That should not be a problem now. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, talk to me. I will help you find one. (laughs) In fact, there are probably Bibles laying all over this building that are lost without a home, and they would be happy to go home with someone who would open them and read them. And so when we read, do not let them depart from your eyes. I remember being a student in college, and in the times of finals, I would actually have dreams that I called exam review dreams. And I would be so engrossed in studying for finals out of fear of performance and also actually desiring to understand some of it, that I would fall asleep in my books, as it were, and I would have a vivid dream of studying the material. And this happened on a number of occasions, and I would wake up the next morning. Now, I don't know how much of that was actually accurate. It was a dream, after all. Don't trust them in that regard. But I remember thinking, I think I just reviewed it all over again in my sleep. It was there, 
because I was staring at it for so long. My consciousness and my unconscious sleep state was dwelling upon the things that I was studying. We are to be such faithful students of the word of God that when we close our eyes, the words are emblazoned on our eyelids. Maybe you don't remember things that way. Oftentimes that's the way I remember things. I think of them, especially on our page with notes like these, there's some color here. I think of words in proximity spatially to other words, and that is oftentimes how I can recall them. There's some people that have photographic memories. That's not most of us. And so when the father says to the son, don't let them depart from your eyes, he's not saying don't get a good night's sleep, only ever be reading. There's other things you have to do besides be in your books. But look at what the statement is just following that. Keep them in the midst of your heart. You are to look at them, and for those of you children who are memorizing the Gospel of John, this is what memorization is. It is to take something that is written on the page and to copy it here. Here and here. That is what the Father wants the Son to do. Have it readily accessible. This is how we are to receive it. Why? What is the benefit of this? Verse 20 and 21. Because it gives you life. It gives you life. Look at verse 22. To hear and to see. To take them into your heart brings health. It brings health. It brings life. Can there be be any greater motivation to any of us? Is there any better reason to listen and to look at the words of God's revelation manifested by speech and written language? It brings life. Now, this is what Thomas Brooks, who wrote a wonderful little treatise on dealing with temptation in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. This is what he writes about the health of your spiritual anatomy. It is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads the most... But he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. As one elder put it to me, you stay on the rock until it lends its jewel. This is what it means to be a student of scripture. And so oftentimes the greatest advice you can ever give to someone who is studying the scriptures and struggling with its sense and meaning is this. Read it. Again, And then when you've done that, this is what I want you to do. Read it again. And again, and again, and again. And then look for those places where those particular words may be found somewhere else. And then read that again. Because at the end of this long chain of faithful biblical study, what do we find? That in the midst of it, we are in fact improving 
the quality of our lives, our physical and spiritual health. Scripture is a boon to every aspect of your life. And so do you wish to be strong against Satan's temptations? Do you wish to be gentle, kind, of great use to your neighbor? Do you wish to know how to think, feel, and act in light of life's many circumstances? Then get wisdom. Listen and look. This is what is perhaps a passive approach to the protection of the human heart, to look and to listen. Then secondly, we look at something a little bit more active in the uh, manifesting of the Father's words. We see that in verses 23 through 27. Keep your heart with all diligence. Verse 24, put away from you a deceitful mouth. Verse 25, let your eyes look straight ahead. 26 and 27 are connected, one positive. Ponder the path of your feet. And then 27, do not turn to the right or to the left. The Father is appealing to the actions of the Son and the organs related to those actions. Now, in verse 23, there is a connection between verses 20, 20, 21, and 22 and what follows in 24 through 27. He talks again about the heart. In verse 22, if you look at the wisdom of God, if you keep them in the midst of your heart, there is life. And again, he talks about the heart. Keep your heart with all diligence because it is a wellspring of life. For out of it spring... The issues, the decisions, the character, the righteousness or unrighteousness. It is who you are. And therefore, it is to be protected. Children, there is no greater gift than that of an innocent, pure heart. And let me tell you this right now. There is a target that Satan has more than all the other members of your body, and that is your heart. And he will do whatever he can to work his way into your heart in such a way that it might be corrupted so that everything that it touches is also corrupted by it. And so how then are we to protect it? Well, the first part was a bit passive, right? We're to listen. We're to look. Here, the admonition is far more aggressive, you might say as it relates to the actions of man. Now, before we get there, I'm going to talk about what the heart is. And in order to do this, I do want to read from Waltke and De Silva's commentary on the book of Proverbs. They have a long commentary and a short commentary. The short commentary is great. The long commentary is just more of the great stuff. This is a long quote from the short commentary. I want you to listen as I read from this somewhat lengthy, but I think helpful summary of what they call the heart. The heart is the seat of a person's disposition. The complex interplay of intellect, sensibility, will, and disposition occurs in the heart. It prompts all that we do. Thus, planning and decision-making are actions of the heart. The heart also has spiritual functions. It accepts and trusts in the religious sphere. It feels all modes of desire 
and is responsible for ethical activity. The teacher warns the son not to let his heart covet the adulteress's beauty. We see that in Proverbs 6. And not let it envy sinners. The heart's psychological and spiritual functions are closely connected to its spiritual state. It can be wise and pure or perverse. The bent of one's heart can determine one's actions. Therefore, Solomon seeks to bend the spiritual condition of the heart by repeated appeals to accept his wisdom. But the heart can spurn correction and become so hardened that it cannot move in a new spiritual direction. The centrality of the heart to a person's emotional, intellectual, religious, moral activity demands its utmost safeguarding. Paradoxically, While the eye and the ear are gates to the heart and shape it, the heart decides what they will see and hear. Now we're going to see something of that relationship, the dance, if you will, between the heart and the other organs, the eyes and the ears, and here also the feet. The condition of your heart affects what you listen to or desire to listen to. Or see or do, while at the same time, what you hear, see, and do in turn does something to your heart. There is a dialogue between these parts of not only the sun's anatomy, but all of our anatomies. So, how are we then to actively act in righteousness with our mouth, with our eyes, and with our feet? Let's look at verse 24. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. The first clear exhortation is to put away lies. Why is that? Well, it's not only commanded that we not bear false witness. But lying is the means by which we destroy not only the good name, our good name, the good name of others. It destroys relationships. It destroys trust. It brings chaos and confusion. And here, it is the active means by which our hearts are actually destroyed. If you lie enough, you will destroy your heart. There is an element of self-harm. It corrupts the heart. And it is also the testimony of a corrupt heart. So how then are we to guard our hearts in this way? We are to not lie... And we are not to be perverse in our speech. We see much of this kind of talk today. Much lying is a means of gaining power over another and much perversity as a way of celebrating our corporate guilt and endeavoring to covet over with more and more lies. And this happens not only on a public level, it happens all the time, even in our homes. But it is great danger, or it presents great danger. It is the opposite of wisdom and righteousness. Not only do we find our mouths employed and part of the keeping of a good heart, but also our eyes. Verse 25, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. If you go to a parade, and it's one of those great parades where you have people on horses... Those horses are not standing, walking, 
without blinders on. If they were to do so, they would be distracted and dangerous to the rider and those who were there and the horse himself. And so when you see horses walking down the parade, you will find these little pieces of either leather or some kind of hard material that keeps their eyes looking only forward. Wisdom says, look straight ahead. At what? Well, the goal, the objective. What is the objective? Well, here, the clear and near objective is to what? Keep your heart holy. In Hebrews chapter 12, there is an expansion upon this principle in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now when Christ envisioned his miserable suffering on the cross... That was one of the things that he was looking at. But what was the second and most important goal? The glory of his exaltation and the redemption of the bride. If we are to endure depravity and sufferings, if we are to get past temptation and lust and covetousness and wanderings, to whom are we to look? The one who has done it well. And the one who now calls us into his employ as his disciples. And we are to look at him not merely as a teacher, but the very lover and redeemer of our souls. We are to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And not only does uh, the writer of Hebrews have something to say of that, but Paul also. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Listen to this. Here is more of what we are to look to when we walk, where our eyes and our eyeballs, our pupils, are to go. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown... Therefore, Paul says, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Why did Paul suffer it all? For the crown. For the glory of of what he's experiencing now. To dwell with Christ in all eternity. And the peace and the beauty and the glory that awaits the saints who run well. The Father says to the Son, there are so many things that would catch your eye. Squirrel, you know what I mean? Squirrel! Do not look to the right or the left. Look ahead. And then not just the eyes and the mouth, but the feet. In fact, your feet will go where your eyes are looking. Concerning your feet, in verse 26 and 27, there is a positive exhortation. Ponder 
the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. And then a negative, do not turn to the right or the left, remove your foot from evil. He's speaking of the good path and the bad path. Stay on the good path. Now, in order to stay on the good path, we are to ponder. Uh, recently, we went camping, we went on vacation, and there is this hike that we went to on a waterfall. It makes me nervous. And it makes me very nervous when I'm with my children because in order to get to this waterfall and the base of this waterfall, you have to go down what I would consider to be a relatively treacherous, steep path. And some of the sections of the path, at least, that I went down in order to avoid the poison ivy were a mixture of dirt and loose rock, which is a recipe for um, being lifelighted out of the mountains, Right? Here I am lying at the bottom of the mountain, broken, waiting for someone to pull me up into a helicopter. And it requires great care. And you don't just sort of walk down the hill nonchalantly, lest you tumble to your demise. Every step needs to be considered. This is what he means by ponder. Or if you're trying to cross a river and you're stepping on stones, you don't just sort of look up and walk. You look at that stone and you think, all right, I'm going to go to that stone next and then that stone. And oftentimes, children, you will hear this question so much it makes you want to throw up a little bit. What are you going to do next? What's next? What's after? I don't know. I don't know. Now, oftentimes that question is difficult because what's being asked is um, six stones from now, where do you find yourself? The father isn't saying, son, you need a 50-year plan. What he is saying to the son is, you need to know what the next right decision looks like. You need to know that if you step on that stone, you're going to slip. But if you step there, you will be secure. This is the beauty of the weekly Sabbath. And the beauty and the blessing of the weekly Lord's Supper, even if you don't know what to do, you know this. Come Sunday, I know where I will be. It's the beauty of a calendar that is dictated by rest, contemplation, meditation on God's glorious truths. It is thoughtfulness to ponder. It is a consideration of and the measuring of one's steps. And not just how you should go, but to think of what will happen to you if you go the wrong way. And what the father did earlier in the chapters in Proverbs is help the son to see how certain steps lead to certain ends. If you go this way, this is what will happen. If you go this way, this is what will happen. There are two ways. And I will tell you this. Your feet will follow your eyes. And not only will your feet follow your heart, as the Cheshire cat said to Alice, where do you want to go? Or where should I go? Well, it depends on where you want to end up. You go where you want. But there is something also glorious about the activities and the habits of the human anatomy. You've heard me say this before. You become what you behold. That principle comes from the Psalms. It comes from the whole of God's word. But the psalmist says in two different places, in 115 and in 135, those who worship them, we just sang it, that those who worship idols 
go where they go. They are thrown into the fire. That principle is repeated twice in the Psalter. And it's the exact same wording. Do you think God wants us to get the point he does? You become what you behold. Someone asked me recently, why do you go to church twice on Sunday? Because you become what you behold. What are you beholding on Sunday evening? Why not God in his splendor? You become what you behold. But to add to that principle are these issues of the ear, the mouth, the feet. Perhaps I might add this. Your heart is nourished by what comes forth even from your own mouth. And your mouth is a reflection upon that which your heart is feasting upon. I love comedy. I think comedy is given to us by God in order to mock the prideful and the powerful. And it's a very useful tool. In fact, perhaps the most important figure in all the kingdom is the jester. To remind the king he is but a man. But comedy today has taken upon itself a kind of characteristic that you can almost not abide. It is perverse. It is wicked. It requires a use of language that shocks people into a state of uncomfortableness. And most of the laughter that issues forth from people's mouths is either delighting in the perversity or a kind of discomfort because of the shocking. It is no wonder then the depths of the perversity of our society. Our hearts are nourished even by what we say. And what we say is the result of what our hearts have been feasting upon. Or as it relates to our feet, your heart follows your feet wherever it goes. And in the same way we might say our feet go wherever our heart tells it to. There is no greater contrast in all of Scripture than Joseph and David in this. They had the same promise, an available act of intimacy. One woman was throwing herself upon Joseph, and Joseph ran. He ran so fast and so quickly that he left a garment behind. That garment was later used to indict him, though he was innocent. Why did Joseph run? Why did his feet take him away from sin? Because his heart belonged to the Lord. And in the same but opposite way, we see the relationship of a heart to another set of feet. In fact, that battle appears to have been lost the moment David went up on the roof. Because he knew exactly what he was doing when he was up there. Right? And there are a lot of roofs that begin with WW dot in our culture today. And we have no business going up on those roofs. We have in many ways lost the battle the moment our feet get to the place where temptation washes over us. I would imagine Bathsheba was not the only woman bathing on a rooftop. But he saw her... And instead of running, repenting, 
and then going out to the troops where he should have been in the first place. He lingered, he looked, and then with his mouth, what did he say? She looks good, bring her to me. And this, dear brothers and sisters, are the options that are open to us. And unless we ponder our feet and the ways in which we go, we will find ourselves in chapter 5, the perils of immorality. Dear saints, our deepest longing should be innocent, holy hearts. In fact, there is no greater gift than you can give to your family and to the world than a heart unstained and a heart in which God is working to renew even those places that have been stained, to heal, to nourish, and to strengthen upon God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord.